0: So, you know, if you gather people in one place, um, people are actually going to bump shoulders. They're going to start conversations with each other. They might help each other with different problems, Mm -hmm. but when you put all that online, you no longer have that organic design that creates the serendipity. You have to literally intentionally create the serendipity.
1: This is episode 3 of the India University's Podcast by Questio. I'm your host Shelton. Welcome back. If you're a first time listener, do check out episode 1, I spoke with Albert Aranaza around the future of education. In episode 2, I spoke with John Dana around the evolution of online education creators. There are some neat insights for those of you hungry and invested in the future of online learning. Getting back to this week, I sat with Wes Wagner, the founder of Align. Align is a platform that enables income share agreements for learning organizations. We spoke about the origins of Align, as well as unbundling of education. As usual, if you don't have time to sit around for the entire episode, look for the transcription link in the episode description below. Cheers. Hey, Wes. Good morning. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Sheldon. So, Wes, I've been following a lot of your tweets recently, and you guys recently launched a new project um, called Align. So, uh, I'm really interested in hearing more about what the mission is with Align.
0: Yeah, so Align is a platform that makes it easy to launch and scale income share agreements. So in a few API calls, we handle all the complexities of you know, managing income share agreements from actually generating and managing the contracts and signatures to verifying people's identities to you know, it kind of doing a sort of alternative credit check uh, to actually valid, you know, verifying their income and setting up repayments and, and making sure those payments don't fail. So the mission behind it really is to democratize access to education and to opportunity. And, and we kind of got there because, you know, I, I, I've been lucky to um, I have a sort of pretty fortunate upbringing. And when I was growing up in high school, I, I started doing some tutoring for you know, Burmese uh, refugees and some folks from Latin America. And they were just people that were insanely talented. I, I remember one, one kid in particular... He had just got to Indianapolis from the border of Thailand and and Burma. He uh, barely spoke English, but I remember um, in this after-school tutoring program, he was really amazing at math. Like he just he he could barely speak uh, you know any English, but he was amazing at math. And uh, one day, the the funding for that program got shut down, Um, and that just really, really hit me hard because I saw so much talent with with some of these kids, but they've never given been given the opportunity and so that sort of combined with some of my past experiences working at an online school called microverse where we help people from all around the world learn new skills and get new jobs without paying anything up front um, led me to realize that there's just so much talent in the world and the bridge between that talent and the opportunity is something that's a a huge problem that we all need to work on and I think income share agreements you know offer that that sort of uh, bridge
1: Mm -hmm. so in terms of what you said about democratizing access why does income share agreements have the advantage over other traditional mediums?
0: Yeah. So how I like to think about the conversation um, is the unbundling and rebundling of education Mm -hmm. and the financing of education. Mm -hmm. So in the history of education, let's say, let's go back to like apprenticeships um, and those relationships, the master apprentice would finance your education in terms of they would spend their time and their resources training you knowing that they could you know, you sort of use your labor to their advantage, and you'd sort of pay them back as you'd learn more skills. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years when Harvard launched. Harvard started loans themselves before actually involving a third party. And so, the education and finance traditionally has been bundled together. Now, sometime in the 1800s, I believe Harvard, for, or maybe it was the early 1900s. I have to get my dates straight here, but it became more efficient to actually separate and unbundle the education from the financing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Harvard focuses on education and then these, these other folks focus on the banks focus on the financing. Well, right now, you're seeing the huge rebundling of the education and finance because when you sort of push the limits of an unbundled setup, you realize there the, the incentive alignment isn't all there and you get, you know, in the United States, which is just, you know, 4% of the world's population, mm-hmm. You have over a trillion dollars in outstanding student debt. And the majority of the world, um, in, in a lot of places in the world, it's either you have money for an education or you don't because the ways that we sort of traditionally do the financing component involve like looking at, let's see, if do you have any like physical collateral I can seize if you don't pay back or, you know, they, they use a lot of these inefficient mechanisms to actually assess what they're trying to assess, which is trustworthiness that you will pay back in the future an in income share agreement in like a traditional student loan are the same thing in terms of their both payment obligations. The income share agreement is just a much can be a much fairer term of a payment obligation. And in many parts of the world, I see it leapfrogging traditional education financing instruments. So at microverse, for example, when we were launching income, share, when we had income share agreements across Africa and Latin America, uh, it was actually really hard to convince people that this was legit because they'd never, you know, it, for, in, that, in their mind, it was either you had money or you didn't. There was no such thing as financing for education. Um, and so that's why I see the power of income share. It's like leapfrogging uh, a lot of educational, financial instruments around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the unbundling of education, because I think we're seeing a rise uh, of that in different mediums right now we've seen the rise of the sort of edu creator space on youtube right there are different creators who's ma- who are making educational content an article that i recently read about it it points the question that a lot of people who are consuming um, educational information of the internet a lot of them are viewing it that as infotainment but then you have some of the some folks who are seekers who are looking to learn from that But then if you look at some of these YouTube creators, especially in the education space, you go check, say, their Patreon or uh, whatever tool they're using to monetize, they have a very low number of subscribers over there. What that got me thinking is, okay, there's fundamentally something missing out here in terms of the business model, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well,
0: so I think in in terms of the business model and what you're seeing happen on my education right now as people are realizing education is a lot more than just content and, and, and MOOCs kind of showed, uh, you know, the, the low completion rate and like, you know, we don't, we don't live in some utopia now where everyone, you know, everyone has a Harvard level educational experience. People are realizing that, um, the content itself is either free or really cheap. So the content is commoditized, but what isn't commoditized is the accountability, the support and the community. And so uh, together I would just call that the educational experience. So what I think folks are realizing now is that to really deliver a world-class education to folks around the world, you have to invest in the experience. And so yeah, the accountability support and community layers. And so when it comes to those, the new, like, like the stage right now with online education, a lot of the, the really successful businesses I've seen aren't necessarily trying to compete again on content. Mm -hmm. Because if you go to like a Udemy, if you go to um, one of these other websites, you can see that they, they had their heyday. And right now you go to the website, you're, you're, you're blasted with pop-ups, you're blasted with sales, you're blasted with deals. If you yeah. leave the website, you'll get an email for a discount. And so now they're like, they're stuck trying to use psychological tactics just to get you buy courses so they can still generate revenue. And so, you know, you're starting to see like a rise of like Slack groups and a rise of forums and smaller com- communities that offer that accountability, support, and community. And so when it comes to the business model, the thing is providing accountability, support, and community costs more. Uh, it, it costs more to 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 do that than to just record a YouTube video. In general, people are having to find some way to generate additional rever- revenue to cover the costs of teachers, one-on-one sort of mentors, one-on-one sort of instructors, or um, they are trying to reduce those costs by, you know, outsourcing that um, in, sort of that function to members of the community, structuring mm-hmm. incentives so that people with more and more experience um, can actually mentor coach and help people with less experience. And so uh, I think you're seeing those, those, two sort of methods. How I like to compare it is like there are companies that are trying to scale online learning experiences, like uh, a taxi company and hiring all their, you know, their, their taxi drivers and buying all the cars. And there's also the ones that are trying to become the Ubers and the platforms of the world that are just trying to get really, really good at structuring the incentives and the connections to make the experience really efficient. But Underneath all that, um, th- there are rising costs of doing that whatever, with whatever path. And so to cover that, I think people are turning to income share agreements because um, they provide an opportunity to generate, to basically cover that revenue that, you know, not ever, like not everyone can pay up front for an education. They mm-hmm. need some sort of credit. I'm seeing, you know, folks that will try to launch with a 100% ISA, they realize that that's really tough for cash flow that you know maybe they've never uh helped people learn before. And so instead, what they go to is maybe like a hybrid model of an upfront payment combined with an ISA or a recurring payment combined with an ISA. And it's um and actually I think that's where the future of the, the business models in the, in the industry are going because it's more equitable uh to both the consumer who's kind of taking a risk on like a newer educational institution, but it also makes a a sustainable you know, a cash flow, healthy business for the entrepreneur.
1: Hmm. Do you see ISAs as also an incentive or an accountability mechanism to define clear outcomes from the point of view of an education entrepreneur and his relationship with his students? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, when I
0: refer to higher education, I am specifically sort of referring to, in this context, the the trades, which, hmm. um, you know, have a clear, like the, people's goal is, is not necessarily have a perfectly well-rounded degree and experience and they become an amazing global citizen it's literally just to improve their life and the, so the outcome very much is increase their income earning potential um so i, I do think like that that's where the isas uh, work really well are the folks that just they just want a better life by increasing their income and so in that sense um it, it is uh, sort of well aligned with the the outcome of that. Does that that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I think it does. There's a good point that you mentioned there, right? Um, You're thinking of this in terms of trade, to earn money on top of that, right? And then some of the programs, I guess we've seen come up in computer science, where you have these programs that run ISAs for teaching you how to code. That I think has really clear outcomes because, okay, you do this computer science program and then you look for a job I'm wondering what other trades can be replicated in a similar way because, yeah, there are some, it's like you said, there are some fields that may not necessarily, it's more for a well-rounded experience. A person may not be able to convert that into a primary trade by itself.
0: Yeah. You know, coding and software development and computer science, that was sort of a natural first fit because of the the need in the world, the high salary and sort of the uh, less, like it was the, the easiest clear path to sort of try to apply financial models to to make an ISA make sense versus a student loan, which is like, you know, the interest rates and you know, like what the instrument is going to sort of turn into. But then, you know, I've seen a lot of other schools rise, like uh, on Delta is doing growth or growth marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Flock J is doing tech sales. There's also a couple other tech sales boot camps that are, you know, operating outside the United States. I've seen, I haven't seen any in the design sphere yet, but I'd see that the big ones are marketing, sales, Mm -hmm and coding. And then, the, you know, of course, underneath coding, front end, back end yeah. uh, data science, everything in between. Um, but I've also seen ISAs rise for fi- like like physical trades. So okay. um, I've, um, nursing in the United States, for example, there's been a couple of different startups that have uh, kind of risen to, to, to provide ISAs to folks who want to get a nursing degree, or they want to do a uh, like a certified nursing assistant route. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also seen them uh, just very new startups, use ISAs for like manufacturing jobs and helping folks get um, higher paying manufacturing jobs. So, um, they're, they're starting with the, you know, programs that might only require a couple weeks to a couple months, but they can substantially increase someone's income.
1: I think it's a good point you mentioned earlier about MOOCs. So we're sort of seeing MOOCs not, not really die. thing on, um, right now they're concerned about retention. They're concerned about just getting more users and uh, more buyers for their content. Um, and I mean, the clear the clear reasons why MOOCs aren't working anymore today, you have these online learning communities, which right now are few and they're spread out wide. And just given in your experience at Microverse, your thoughts on how a creator can build a good small learning community? What are some things they would need to keep in mind? How they can keep driving engagement and how they can think about retention and scale?
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be sort of a separation in the online education space between the people that want to focus on the content creation and the folks that want to focus on actually helping people more one-on-one and building communities. And I'm not sure necessarily if every content creator is the latter. I've seen, you know, a lot of folks are amazing at structuring the content. Great, you know, great YouTube videos, perfect lighting, but they're not like active on like commenting back to users who are asking questions and things like that. So, um, anyway, I think that's one, that's one point first, but for the folks that want to actually build learning communities, I think that the, the, the first thing is that yeah, they, they have to actually be invested in and in really, you know, want to help folks one-on-one and, you know, enjoy that. But let's just assume they want to start yeah. a learning community. So the first, um, I think, principle that anyone needs to think about is that when you're building an online learning experience, you go from having to like if a physical learning experience you have a lot of organic serendipity that happens so you know if you gather people in one place um people are actually going to bump shoulders they're going to start conversations with each other they might help each other with different problems Mm -hmm. but when you put all that online you no longer have that organic design that creates the serendipity you have to literally intentionally create the serendipity so the way I've seen this done well, and, and there's a lot of people working on, on software to do this, but the way I've seen this done well so far is starting with something as simple as like a Slack group for the like the campus and the serendipitous layer, and you know as as sort of that's the synchronous component of their experience, but then also having a separate hub or a forum which is kind of like the library or the classroom or the content management system, where they actually store the things that they want to keep around forever. And so those things a little bit uh, mixed a little bit, but I've seen that work really well for people that are building online learning experience. And then the first thing that they do is for anyone coming into the learning community, the hack for creating the processes and systems to to build a learning community is just starting with the culture of, hey, like you're coming into this learning community. The more that you put into it, the more that you're going to get out. I think one, it's, it's being very, very selective about like who you let into the initial learning community and making sure they are, they're folks that are really committed that are, you know, dedicated to helping others that already have, you know, they're just, they are bought in, they're not just joining a free Slack group and letting it sit. And so when you start with that culture aspect, you kind of get that mindset in the back of their head of like, oh, like someone's asking a question, I'm going to go help them, or I'm going to go host my own sort of, office hours for the skills i know um, i don't maybe i don't know about everything about software development but i just went through some lesson and now i you know know how to do this i'm going to help others that are that are going that that component and so i think that's that's the first thing is that the culture and then over time you can sort of develop like processes and systems to sort of supercharge those incentives and i don't think there's a, a, a playbook out there just yet for this but how i like to think about it is that like you know, before Uber, there was like people in your neighborhood and your friends and family that are probably willing to give you rides. Like there was this culture that existed of you help me, I help you. And the same thing with like, you know, having a friend stay at your house over a weekend. Like what Uber and Airbnb did is they just supercharged those existing incentives and made them like widespread so they could, you know, have that trust and that incentive structure to a much wider audience. So I think for, for creator, I mean, depending on the the size that like a, a entrepreneur wants to build a learning community. You know, they can keep it as, as small as a small, you know, just a, a very uh, you know, culture-driven system or, or or group, or they can, you know, scale it through actually p- putting down processes and systems and eventually software to create, you know, the next generation of learning platform.
1: I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, and what's missing in the space right now is, okay, how what's the online creator community playbook, right? What, what do I do and how do I do it? Yeah, and I think, I think with new softwares that are coming out and new platforms that are coming out that are coming out or that are being built right now. I think we're getting closer to a definite structure and process, which doesn't exist right now. You know, I, the, the thing that I think about in terms
0: of building online communities um, that yeah, it's just helped me is, is um, thinking about the transaction cost of any interaction between peers or between students and, you know, teacher, entrepreneur, creator. And what I mean by that, like the transaction cost is like, do I literally have to click through four different things and then try to guess where to post my question? Or is it so natural for me to just type out a question? And so I'm probably going to be three times more engaged than without this sort of process. So really thinking through that user experience of like, what is their trans, Like, what is their friction Mm -hmm. to engaging? um, And how can I lower that and make it more obvious Where people can go how can i make it more natural how can i encourage more serendipity and i think thinking about that question is like how to decrease friction and interactions um, can be hugely beneficial when uh, building an online
1: learning community so with now we're sort of seeing the advent of online learning communities we're also seeing the value associated with it i think the internet has democratized access to not just content but even people who are knowledgeable in those specific subject matters and then that them being able to pass on that information which i mean just like you guys were doing with microverse with you know kids from around the world they now have access to that content and that experience of learning with someone uh, which they not necessarily would have uh, geographically in their location people attend elite universities you know for signaling that okay hey i've been here and you already have a status associated being from that college. You already expect that person to have certain qualities as well as certain knowledge. Um, Do you think online learning communities would be able to match up to that in terms of credentialing power in the near future? Yeah,
0: I mean, so I think the question is definitely when, not if, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and I usually, you know, I, I don't tend to like to place bets on the exact when, Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's a couple different things that I think, you know, people need to realize on, on how this is going to look. So what I like to bring the, the concept of social capital in the convers into the conversation. So mm-hmm. social capital I refer to is, you know, the positive sum of interactions between two people that maybe contribute to their health, their wealth, their happiness, and, or social capital is a credential you carry that sort of decreases the friction in those interactions. So mm-hmm. in, the, in the course of like having a uh Cornell degree, you know how ha- you now have this credential, this token that decreases the friction and an interaction that might contribute to your wealth. Like you might be able to get a, a job or or connect with someone that might be a business partner, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a long time to build up social capital, but I don't, you know, I I think the businesses the, the the kind of new universities are being created now to do that. And so Um, I think the the best modern day example of a uh, credential that has some really strong signaling power is in in the technology entrepreneurship space is uh, Y Combinator. So for those that might not be familiar with Y Combinator that are listening, Y Combinator is a a business accelerator that companies like Airbnb have gone through. And so in in a lot of technology circles now, if you say, you know, I went through Y Combinator that has times more signaling power than saying I have, a Cornell or Harvard MBA. So, you know, it, it, so that, you know, Y Combinator's been around for 15 years. They, they didn't get that overnight. So, I think in order to really think about how that can happen is, is um, or one of the things that's contributing to that is educational platforms that have high signaling power of their credential began with a simple concept of come for the utility and stay for the network, come for the skills I'm gonna show you. And stay for the network of the valuable people that you'll meet. Um, but for too long, these the sort of institutions have switched to come from the network. Um, I promise you'll get some utility later on. If you try to start a social network that way, it doesn't really work. You, you can't just promise. Be- like, you know, Instagram, for example, had to start with a photo filter. And so people yeah. came for the utility and then they stayed for, oh, my gosh, now my friends are here sharing the photos. And so I think the same thing is going to happen for um, platforms or schools that are going to you know, online schools that are going to generate a high signaling uh, power. It's just going to take quite a bit of time, though I think COVID accelerates all yeah. of
1: this. Yeah, definitely. One final question. Uh, is there anyone out there in the, in the creator space that you're sort of keeping an eye on right now?
0: So I, I wouldn't say that there is one specific person mm-hmm. I'm keeping an eye on but rather I'm keeping a close eye on the platforms that are really hyper optimized on manufacturing online serendipity. I'm a little picky in, ter- in terms of like platforms that manufacture online serendipity and, and social capital, because I've worked remotely my, sort of my, my whole career and I've tried out a lot of different tools for, you know, creating serendipity in a, work environment online and i think a lot of there, there's a lot of similar characteristics to creating serendipity and social capital and the like online education environment and i honestly think there's not a lot there's not a ton of platforms yet that do an amazing amazing job that i've tried um, but it, it's because too many sort of platforms try to optimize on the in-person environment but just online instead of optimizing on the core optimization which is the social capital the serendipitous interactions so I'm really trying to keep an eye on um, platforms that um, are building for that. Yeah, there's a couple I, I've been monitoring. I, I haven't had access to a couple, so I, I'm going to wait to, to, to mention them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. The other, just companies that are building online learning communities, and they take the Uber approach versus an old taxi company approach. Mm-hmm. And they realize that it's, it's more efficient to sort of create incentives within their community for more experienced folks to help less experienced folks then to hire more teachers, produce all their own content and that sort of thing. So I'm really passionate about that or really interested in that, that trend because um, I think it's where we're going to see the biggest education businesses and um, in, in programs uh, rise.
1: Yeah, it's an extremely exciting time in this space right now. And you're right, you're completely right. COVID has accelerated the need for creating those sort of serendipitous experiences online. Um, we're seeing that with colleges now having to move online and the sort of challenges that they are facing there, especially with engagement. Cool. So um, thanks Wes, thanks for your time this morning. I think this has been, this has been really insightful. Hey Shelton, it's great to connect and
0: um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me Shelton.
1: Yes, awesome man, thanks a lot Wes. Have a good day man. Yeah. You too Shelton, right, or evening. Yeah. <laughs> Three episodes down, thanks for tuning in this week. We'd love to hear from you and your thoughts around online learning systems and digital universities. What do you think? What, do, what sort of incentive mechanisms are institutions missing out on? How can educators think about retention? What tools have you come across to drive engagement in online communities? If you'd like to discuss this and more, hit us up on Twitter at HQ to chat about it. Next week, I'm going to be speaking with Abhinav, the founder of 10K Designers. 10K Designers is an outcome-driven design masterclass, so I'll see you there.